When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome back to No Filler, the music podcast dedicated to sharing the often overlooked hidden gems that fill the space between the singles on our favorite records. My name is Travis. I got my brother Quentin with me as always. And today we have a very special guest on the show. We had the opportunity to sit down and talk with David Brown, senior writer for Rolling Stone and author of the book. Goodbye 20th Century, a Sonic Youth biography. Man, we had a blast with this guy, didn't we? It was a lot of fun, dude. And without a doubt, the most informative episode to date on our show, man. Because we usually just were fumbling around Wikipedia and random articles online just trying to cobble together some sort of like cohesive history of an artist or album. Yeah, we don't spend years researching before each week because there's not enough time for that cue you know what i mean but david did spend years doing research on sonic youth that's right it was like having an encyclopedia on the show and that's uh that's uh and speaking of encyclopedias uh, this is the first guest cue that we've had on the show who has his own wikipedia page i just wanted to put that out there this is a milestone that we've reached if you go to Sonic Youth's Wikipedia page and you check out the references at the bottom, a lot of those references are coming straight from this book. So this is the definitive Sonic Youth biography. And we got him on the show to chat about the Geffen years for Sonic Youth. So their first three records on Geffen Records, which is the first major record label that they signed to in the early 90s and we dive into the beast that is grunge that emerged from uh, the 90s and how nirvana just kind of got pulled into the sonic youth solar system and and how they kind of brought them into geffen records and yeah the the influence that they've had on the alt rock post-punk garage rock scene and, and just pop culture in general you know how these guys were pulling in all these different players from from the new york art scene um yeah so let's let's not give too much away here um so we're gonna jump right into the combo that we have with david and then uh next week we'll do a what you heard episode and we'll see what happens from there all right let's jump right into this combo here again this is david brown 
author of the book, Goodbye 20th Century, A Sonic Youth Biography. All right, David, so why don't you um, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got into Sonic Youth for the first time? Uh, sure. Uh, I am a senior writer at Rolling Stone, where I've been uh, since about 2008. Um, I let's see, before that, I was a music critic or the music critic at Entertainment Weekly magazine. And before that, worked at the New York Daily News. And before that, worked at a long defunct music magazine on Long Island way back in the distant 80s, uh, which is actually where I first heard Sonic Youth. I grew up with two older sisters who were much older than me, uh, 10 and 13 years older than me. And of course, they kept telling me about all the, uh, the great music I missed in the 60s when they were, you know, uh, the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and the Stones, which I, and I knew of all, this mu- of all that music, but it, it was sort of their generation in a way. So uh, when I got out of college, it coincided with, I think, one of the great eras in, in recent music, which is the indie rock explosion of the early 80s. Um, and it's a music that spoke to me pretty much out of the bat. I remember hearing R.E.M.'s first EP, Chronic Town. Um, this is right when I graduated college, which was NYU, uh, where I studied journalism. And I had grown up actually a big fan of the birds and I heard that there was this new band called REM from Georgia who were a little jangly like the birds, but not like that. And I remember hearing that EP and being uh, just knocked out by it because it had familiar musical elements from, you know, what we call classic rock, but it was also kind of strange and murky and you couldn't hear all of Michael Stipe's words. And there was a whole mystique about it. And that that record helped introduce me uh, was sort of my gateway in a way to this whole new world of indie rock that was coming out of all uh, different pockets around the country in New York and Minneapolis and so forth. And next thing I knew, I was picking up records by The Replacements and Husker Du and The Minutemen. Um, I was lucky to get free copies of some of these because I worked in a music magazine uh, where I wasn't making much money. Um, so, but but that music spoke to me, I think, in a way that, say, punk right before it didn't, in a way. It was maybe a little too young for that. Um, and then I remember one day getting a copy in the mail of this record called Bad Moon Rising. And on the cover was this scarecrow with a pumpkin head burning. And on the back, I there seems to be a song about Charles Manson. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm going, okay, what's this? Uh, this band called Sonic Youth. I'd sort of heard the name, uh, but uh, hadn't wasn't real familiar with their music. And that was their, their third release by then, second full album. And as with the other uh, indie bands, uh, I was kind of immediately drawn into them and how unusual they were. Um, like the guitars seemed a little out of tune, but intentionally, you know, the the songs were littered with kind of splatters of noise and the singers weren't um, belting it out in any kind of rock way. That was sort of my first intro to Sonic Youth, trying to figure out that record. It was an incredibly daunting 
<laughs> record to uh, to grapple with right out of the, right out of the box. And I think that's the thing that was kind of cool about a lot of that music back then. It was it was sort of challenging. I mean, that's a lot of that indie rock stuff. It 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 uh, it wasn't. And Sonic Youth was embodied that it wasn't music that was intended to necessarily lull or comfort you. It was like pushing you to kind of hear things in different ways and hear hear rock and roll in different ways. There were no guitar solos. You know, I grew up hearing you know songs with, you know, whether it's the Dead or Neil Young or or the Almond Brothers or whatever stuff when I was a little kid, you know, and there were guitar solos. And Sonic Youth, they were like guitar textures. And then you had like the the hair metal bands and the arena rock that was just, you know, it had just happened. And this was almost like anti all that, right? Like the no wave movement. It was totally anti all that. And that's a good point. Um, I liked uh, some of that sort of, you know, heartland rock stuff of the mid 80s, like, John Cougar's Mel, uh, John Mellencamp's sorry, Scarecrow album, I think, was terrific, and and so did Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth. He liked that album too. But this was yes, this was anti the uh, slowly uh, enveloping MTV sound at the time. You know, where where uh, you were hearing more synthesizers, you were hearing incredibly loud drums. It sounded like I guess that. it was almost anti new wave, right? Like that was kind of like a it, dig, yes, at new wave, yes, in a way, yeah. I mean, Sonic Youth and all these bands grew grew out of the punk scene of, of the late seventies. They all were into that music, um, and yet, uh, and and some of those bands and some of that music morphed into new wave, which was much more commercial. The Cars and uh, so forth and bands like that. And you had, so you had a certain amount number of bands going that direction. And then you had bands like Sonic Youth taking punk and going in another direction and, and almost dismantling rock along the way. And that was, uh, it was sort of like nothing I'd ever heard before. Like I said, the, 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 whether it was the arrangements, the singing, the sound of the records, the absence of the guitar solos or recognizable hooky songs. Um, it really was not any, like anything uh, many of us had heard, I think. And it was a really kind of an exciting thing to, to delve into. Yeah. And some of these bands, you know, they kind of, they presented themselves differently too. There was no, there was no like latex or, or makeup or anything like that, or like really over the top, you know, pyrotechnics and stuff with the shows. Like they were, it was very stripped back and just like, this was before the the flannel stuff in the '90s, the grunge stuff. But like, this was the precursor to that, right? It, it totally was. Uh, you know, Kim Gordon, who later became kind of a fashion icon. Maybe back then, she had her glasses with the little flip up shades on them, and she would wear kind of long peasant dress type things. And um, she looked kind of kind of geeky in her way, and they kind of all did. Um, Thurston Moore was this tall, gangly guy who looked like Dennis the Menace's older brother and, you know, Lee <laughs> That's Ronaldo a really good had, had this, uh, <laughs> they all, you know, they, they did not look like conventional rock stars either. Um, they kind of looked like people you would see around the East Village or downtown, which is where I was living uh, also. Yeah. And I guess Michael Stipe and all of them are, were kind of doing that, that too, right? I mean, that's kind of the whole, the you know, as we were transitioning out of the the well i guess the 80s this is still in the 80s so like the glam rock stuff was kind of happening alongside this bands like uh poison or twisted sister right right i mean van halen you know obviously they go back to the to the 70s but like van halen later on you know when they 
when when they brought in Hagar and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Rock and roll was getting increasingly uh, produced. You know, even like you know, I mean, those hair metal bands maybe had had their roots in listening to Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or whatever. But yeah, but hair metal bands were very heavily produced and very slick, packaged. Had, you know. Yeah, had those you know those mile a minute guitar solos and 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 lots of hairspray and all that sort of stuff, and that stuff was starting to rise up around the same time too, for sure. And I think you know the the indie rock scene, it was more down to earth in a way. We're not going to quote your book to you <laughs> too often, but there's actually a really good quote you that have I like. You have to get permission by trademark. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you said here um, that you know these bands, the bands that you're talking about were sort of like fighting for a way to make rock and roll fresh, wonderful, and real again. So I like that. Like that you were saying, they were trying to make rock and roll real again. Like that kind of stood out to me. Real and not quite as um, aggressive as punk was. Um, it was, uh, I wouldn't say these bands were singing love songs, but they certainly were... Uh, uh, expressing uh, emotions, maybe in a way, even if it was guarded, the way Michael Stipe or Kim Gordon or Thurston Moore would, uh, much more so than than punk. It was more expansive, in a way, than punk too. It was taking that. It was taking that kind of stripped down punk sound of the seventies, uh, and not going in the no wave direction where you really stripped it down. It was almost primal. But they were saying like, okay, we're gonna take. We're going to take that kind of uh, primitive punks, punk sound, but we're going to kind of build on that. We're going to kind of merge it with uh, some aspects of, uh, of melody and some more emotional content. And I think that that combination was really was really fascinating. It was really it, it did feel incredibly uh, fresh at the time. And also, we shouldn't forget the same time this is happening. Uh, hip-hop is happening right and so you have indie rock which is recontextualizing rock and then you have this completely new exciting and really unheard of sound coming up at the same time and uh i mean in the same place too right in the same place and that's and that's another thing we should we'll quickly talk about which is that you know new york city in the late 70s early 80s was kind of an edgy grimy and sometimes you know, dangerous place. You know, I, I remember a friend of mine going to see uh, some band at, it was either CBGB's or Mud Club, one of those legendary clubs. He got like stabbed in the leg. My gosh. You know, he came back to our dorm room and he had a big rip in his jeans. And we were like, what happened? Oh, I was stabbed. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, um, and yet at the same time, it was the downtown scene especially the mixture of music and art uh, was, was just, you know, exploding and because it was so cheap to live there, you know, I mean, you could get an apartment for a couple hundred bucks a month. Like I did artists, unlike now artists could move into this part of New York and make a little bit of money playing gigs or whatever and survive somehow. But you know that you had Jean-Michel Basquiat, doing his thing. You had uh, Keith Haring doing his artwork. You had bands like Sonic Youth, um, Lydia Lunch and her bands. And they were all like sort of hanging out together. And, uh, you know, you see that 
a little bit in the uh, Debbie, the Blondie video for Rapture, Blondie's rap song, but they have uh, graffiti artists in the background. And it's, it was this merging of cultures uh, of white and black culture of music and art that made it an incredibly vibrant scene. I think someone in my book compared it uh, to you know Paris in the twenties or something, but it had that feel about it um, at least for a few years there of, of sort of anything is possible. And you could just like reinvent yourself. If you felt like you were an artist, you could just kind of do that and want to be a musician. I mean, you know, Kim Gordon wasn't a musician. She admits that. I mean, she, you know, prided herself on being the most primitive bass player, but you know, Thurston Moore was, they started going out and he was like, well, why don't you be in my band? Okay. You know, suddenly she's in a band and, and you could sort of uh, do whatever you wanted in a way and still be able to survive, (laughs) which is, which is uh, kind of an unthinkable thing right now. Well, I think this is a good segue. I want to play our first pick. You had mentioned kind of that stripped down punk sound. So you first heard, Bad Moon Rising, something you reference in your intro about Sister, which came out in 87. So that was a couple albums later, specifically the song Cotton Crown that shows up on there and how that that song just kind of stood out to you. Let's play the song real quick and then I want to get your thoughts on it. start so it's just you know what what you say in the book is is really does stand out about it you know it's the music like the instrumentation the 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 guitar the bass really tough you know and like gnarly (laughs) and then the juxtaposition with that is that just a really pretty melody and that yeah there's there's something different about that yeah and and you know i'd heard their music by then and i remember that song is toward the end of the sister record and up to that point, there are these, you know, great uh, kind of springy, kind of almost punky songs like Catholic Block. And there's this 
big sprawling song called Pacific Coast Highway and so forth. But I, I remember when, when that, I was enjoying it. And then I got to Cotton Crown, I was like, they're getting into something else that's new here. I mean, the, yeah, the instrumentation, as you can hear on that song, I think the instrumentation is very, uh, very Sonic Youth of, of its time. It feels like, um, like a snow shovel. A guitar sound like a snow shovel scraping across the sidewalk. And the sound is kind of dank. Yeah. And uh, I hear that all these years later, I, I think of like a, a, a really uh, gritty, yucky New York City street. You know, it just it just conjures going into the subway for me or something. That it's it's a it's a, like a dank subterranean kind of sound to it, uh, and yeah, yeah, they they have this kind of really pretty melody on top with these harmonies of Kim and Thurston, which are they're not quite Simon and Garfunkel when it comes to the <laughs> right. harmony singers, but there's sort of a tenderness there that you can hear that's on top of this incredibly as as you guys said gnarly. Uh, kind of um, almost almost kind of ugly kind of instrumentation, and that was I mean it just jumped out at me at the time when listening to that record, and I thought, okay, they've done this. Um, that that gave us a hint of where they might go next. I think for me anyway, I thought, okay, they they've nailed the a certain splattery noise rock sound, and some of those early records and spoken word pieces and all this kind of stuff and now they seem like they're getting ready to go somewhere else and that was that was like an exciting moment too it was just like okay uh and i think the, the, i remember feeling like the same way hearing right around the same time rem's uh, like life life's rich pageant which was 1986 um and that record was produced by John Mellencamp's producer. It all comes back to John Mellencamp, I guess. <laughs> but it was like hey, they're working with this guy REM, who who um, you know is used to making these muscular, radio friendly records. And you put that record on, and you were like, "Wow, this this has a, a bigger, bolder sound than REM, but it's still REM. Like it's very true to them." And so you know you're entering a period with that music. Um, the replacements also with Please to Meet Me and songs like Alex Chilton, where these bands are uh, are maturing, I guess would be the way to put it, but but in a good way. Yeah, so funny enough, that's the that's the one REM record that we've done an episode on, actually, was Live Switch oh, wow. Pageants. So, <laughs> yeah, we were, we were a little bit familiar with that one, yeah. Yeah, it's a, that's a great one. That's a great it's one. a really good one, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of great stuff on that record, a lot of interesting things that they introduced on that record. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, so from this point forth, basically you're like, you know what, this is a band that I should I should probably pay attention to, Sonic Youth. With after you heard Cotton Crown, it sounds like, and then kind of from there, we're gonna transition into these three records that we're kind of devoting this this episode to, which is Goo, Dirty, and Jet Set. So this is when, um, you know, th- this is the the window where where they sort of saw some some commercial success. Is that right? As much as they were, I mean, if you want to call it that, right? But this is when they started to very small, very small amount. But in their, as far as their career is concerned, like this is this is when they were, if they were going to do it, it was going to happen during this window, right? Exactly. The first half of the '90s was um, the moment when Sonic Youth came as close as they ever would to becoming "quote unquote" mainstream. This was the period when they were plucked from the uh, small indie label world to the major label world of Geffen Records, 
who uh, at the time was home to people like Don Henley and White Snake and people like that. Uh, it was the time when they were given a budget to make some more produced records, and they were they were uh, went on tour with Neil Young as his opening act. They were uh, included in an episode of The Simpsons. Uh, you know, there were just um, all these moments where, uh, for a period of time, they came as close as possible to. Uh, I wouldn't say becoming a household name, but uh, because which they never became, but as close as they came to having uh, the sort of commercial success that um, the record company wanted from them. And uh, I mean, you we could also argue that 1990 to 1995 was also the last great era for rock. But that could we be talk another... about that quite a bit, actually. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we talk about that a lot. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so they they had a rough go of it, you know, with with Geffen from what I read, you know, from your book, I mean, you know, they got thrown into that Neil Young tour and were just not treated well by his crew, um, having trouble with, with the sound guys and, and yes, you know, all that stuff trying they're, they're being told to turn down their, their, uh, speakers on stage because, you know, they're the opening act. They're not supposed to be louder than Neil right, Young. Right. <laughs> all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Um, yeah, the whole the, the whole thing was a was a rude awakening for them, I think. To, yeah. To, uh, and you know, again, um, put it in the context, by the end of the eighties, th- this was part of a whole movement of indie rock going mainstream in general. You know, usually we we think that that happened with Nirvana, and after Nevermind became huge in nineteen ninety one, and suddenly all the major labels were like looking around, like, hey, who's our Nirvana? And they start scooping up all these indie bands, none of whom sell <laughs> what Nirvana did. <laughs> but that actually all started in the in eighties when when REM and the Replacements and Husker Du were suddenly signed up by Warner Brothers and other labels like that. And Sonic Youth was the the next one of those. Uh, they put out a fantastic double album called Daydream Nation in nineteen eighty eight. Love that album. Which yeah, which. Uh, it's funny, you know, in interviews with them for my book, they, they, they said they really like it, but they never saw it as their masterpiece. But it was treated that way. Uh, it was a big, epic record for them. And that suddenly got everyone's attention in the music business. And they end up signing with Geffen Records after entertaining offers from all kinds of people. And they were like the least likely band to, in a way, given their kind of arty impulses and and all that, but they, you know, it was what was happening in the culture, and yeah, they had a, uh, they they did have um, a rough time making uh, the Goo album. I think there was a lot of um, uh, uh, disagreement within the band, the producers, as to how how slick they should be, or you know how, right. how produced should they be, how uh, should they still have layers of. Uh, feedback and squalling guitars all around them or should they trim that back and they had like what like quadruple the amount of tracks available yes, to yeah. use you know in the record and the in the studio and they brought on the same sound engineer from daydream nation right, right at the beginning right. and then and then yeah they just lost faith in him kind of and he he dropped out at the very end right right uh, yeah it was it was uh it was kind of a, a whole learning experience for them in terms of um you know, how do they kind of shape their sound uh, to make it a little more radio friendly? And they have they had access to more money and a bigger studio and all those tracks, like you say. And a guy who works on heavy metal records, Ron Saint Germain, who came in to 
mix it at the end and and there was a there were a lot of cooks in that kitchen right as every, everyone was trying to figure out how do you make a commercial sonic youth album for the youth market and you know it's interesting that they also uh, before they even made it the record company was suggesting producers like daniel lanois who worked with u2 and Robbie Robertson of the band, you know, like, you know, everyone was like trying to figure out how to do this. Um, and uh, they, ultimately they were left to their own devices in, in a way. But I mean, just imagine the, the pressure they were under, you know, on top of all that. Exactly. Exactly. They were, you know, they, they got a, a, a decent advance, probably more money than they'd seen before. And, and this was before Nirvana too, of course. So the the, the pressure would only increase <laughs> over the next two records, um, and the timing too with everything, which we'll get into. Right, right. Um, yeah. So you know, you mentioned in your book, and you quote Shelley here saying that we should have just released the demos. <laughs> uh, Kim started started crying when she heard the final mixes. Right. They just they were not happy with it. Had they been used to having a more hands-on approach up to this point were they a little bit more like involved with the the mastering process and the recording process and stuff like that up to this point and that's why they they hear the final mixes played back to them and it's like this is not what we made or this is not what we wanted to do it was more it was more like an economics thing you know uh the the earlier records were made in like a week or something you know when because you don't have a lot of money and you're working in some little little underground studio in new york you know you, you make it as fast as you can and you got to save money and indie labels weren't giving them a lot of money with geffen they had more money they could spend weeks doing this stuff and it's like with anything you know uh you spend too much time laboring over something you overthink things you kind of lose a bit of the direction and i don't think they were used to that at that point they weren't they were given all these luxuries and all this opportunity you know you know thurston as he said to me, I think in the book, like, wow, like, what if we tried to make like an Aerosmith record for Sonic Youth and do all this production <laughs> like, stuff? What like, would that well, sound that, like? That, would that, yeah, what would that be like? <laughs> and, uh, and it was it was a lot more fraught. Uh, although, ironically, I think um, you listen to that record now, it just sounds like another Sonic Youth record to me. <laughs> you know, it really, you know, you kind of wonder like what what uh, what problems they had with it. Um, yeah, but it is interesting to think about other bands that have had similar issues with just overthinking things. And, you know, once they get signed onto a major label, it just seems to always change things like for the, for the worse usually, because, you know, like you said, if they're used to putting out records in a week or whatever, that probably is what led to so many of those moments on their, on their early records where it just kind of breaks into chaos and stuff like that. Like it just seems more raw and authentic and stuff like that. And then when you get into a studio and you have all this money and all this pressure and all these people in and out of the process and stuff, it probably takes away from that, that raw authentic sound, you know, that they, that they were used to, you know, they were probably used to not having to care so much. Right. 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 Uh, um, I mean, they cared about the music, but, but they didn't have the luxury of, of, uh, of caring too much. Yeah, which uh, which is interesting because it seems, seems like that's kind of what helped them cultivate the sound that they had was not having to care so much or not, not have to worry about it too much. What was interesting too about Sonic Youth, I kind of learned more about this when I did the book, was um, the, the process of making these records, you know, which started from the early days, which was also very different. You, a lot of rock bands start with, if there's a front person or lead main songwriter, 
uh, you know, let's say Mick Jagger and Keith Richards come in with a song. Hey, guys, we wrote this song called uh, Brown Sugar. Let's work it up. You know, that kind of thing. Um, with Sonic Youth, their songs would start with there would be these long instrumental jams. Somebody would come in with like, oh, maybe this do a little chord thing. And they would just play this. And it was all it's just instrumental over and over and over again. And it would um, become this blob of music. And they would just like cut it down and rearrange it and and almost like a jam, but not in a traditional way. And then they would sort of whittle it down. And then one of them would decide, oh, maybe I'll write the words for this. They'd split it up that way. It was very different. They put a lot of forethought into their records. And um, and, and and in this case, they um, they had the same amount of time, I guess, in a way, to actually record them. Yeah, <laughs> you know? interesting. Whereas, they, yeah, they would just go in and bang it out. Now they had all this, all this stuff. So I think between you know, having to deal with um, some of that pressure, they suddenly had a, an actual manager you know, a big time rock manager uh, who was, you know, calling them constantly and you know, updating them on industry stuff. And then they go on tour with Neil Young, which was Neil Young's invitation. I mean, Neil, Neil Young loves guitar feedback and he heard <laughs> they were cool. So he invited them along and they, as you said, they, they ran into all kinds of problems. So it was kind of a rude awakening in some ways, uh, to the, the realities of the business. Uh, but, 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 but that said, like I said, you know, you kind of listen back to, um, and I think goo was greeted with a little, uh, a little, uh, less of the ecstatic reviews of daydream nation, which had been so built up by then. And, and so I think some people felt a little let down by it. Uh, but I think there's plenty of great music on. Goo. Oh yeah. And it's really, I mean, I think sonically it, it does ramp it up from daydream nation. It's, a, it's more in your face and, and, uh, cool thing i think it's just one of their their great sort of rocking songs if we can <laughs> if we can say that about sonic youth well and, and speaking of hip-hop happening at the same time chuck d from public enemy shows up on that right one. right and they were at the, in the same studio is that they right? were in the same studio making uh i believe it was um fear of a black planet probably and they really wanted to get him they they, they kind of cornered him <laughs> in the hallway and said can you just like talked something into this song and so he just kind of like did it you know it was like uh, so he's not like he's rapping but it but but again that's a that was a great extension yeah i think one of the things that sonic youth did on goo that was a real accomplishment and maybe they didn't even realize that at the time and it's part of their whole story is they brought the underground into the mainstream and sometimes when they did that the people they brought along got more popular than them <laughs> but if you look at if you look at at, at goo that you know they're they're still using their team of people uh they've got the typical kind of uh artwork that they use on the covers and uh in this case it's raymond pettibone who was a, a great underground artist at the time so they didn't compromise in that way and they you know they made it a point to to take the elements of their own posse and their own scene and kind of bring them into the mainstream but so I think that's one of the main accomplishments of Goo was that it, it wasn't a sellout record and they really stayed true to themselves as much as you possibly could when you make that leap to, uh, as you guys earlier said, into, into the big time. Well, let's play a, a non-single off of it. Uh, so the singles were Cool Thing, Dirty Boots, and Disappearer. Okay. Those are the three. So um, I picked 
Tunic, Song for Karen. I just really like the whole story behind it, the lyrics. So let's play that real quick and then we'll get back into it. such an eerie song oh man yeah it blew me away the first time i heard it which was like two weeks ago by the way <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah yeah it, it reflects it reflects another interesting part of the sonic youth story which was another layer to them which is that as sort of uh, uh imposing and intimidating as they could be both as as people and 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 their early records they also had this pop culture love of aspect of them uh and they were kind of fascinated by like madonna right. and you know they they were taking madonna seriously you know in the mid 80s um and even remaking uh, into the groove as, a, as as into the groovy their own version of it when people were kind of writing her off as like a pop tart or whatever <laughs> you know and they were like and she was part of that downtown scene too you know so um They've they've always um, they were like children of pop culture and of TV and movies and top forty. Didn't they like bring a a 
boombox on stage like before they performed and just played a car- uh, a carpenter's record or something like that exactly they then it was before they yeah it was very good yeah right before they recorded long before they recorded tunic but they would do that and they would have madonna records and they would uh it, it was um it was again very unusual you didn't see rem doing it. yeah <laughs> it right like, um they had this sincere fascination uh with um with kind of the mainstream, even though they, they were never going to get anywhere close to it. So it seems like they were kind of students of pop culture, huh? They were students of pop culture and, and of, and of classic music, classic rock music, uh, which is, you know, some of the things that, that I kind of learned researching the book. I mean, Lee Ronaldo, who's the guitar player, grew up as a Long Island deadhead and loved, <laughs> you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And, you know, Kim Gordon loved Joni Mitchell and, uh, and did a high school uh, dance to a Crosby, Sills, and Nash song called Wooden Ships, you know. And, I love uh, that song. I love that yeah, song. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great song. Uh, so, and, you know, it's um, so it's not like they grew up listening to uh, the most avant-garde, you know, free jazz, you know. Right. They, they were they were children of, of rock and, and, and TV and movies and things like that. And so, uh, and, and Karen Carpenter had died, uh, I guess, about seven or eight years before uh, the goo was recorded and and Kim Gordon was pretty fascinated with her story having heard those records growing up and it's such a tragic story that she had anorexia uh, was probably the first you know high profile celebrity who died from that it was really you know had had, had uh, self-worth and weight issues her whole life and ultimately died died from it and so here's this really eerie song about Karen Carpenter in heaven uh, you know, looking down at her brother and seeing all these other dead rock stars around her. And uh, and it was just at that moment, I think, too, uh, a few years later, there was a Carpenter's tribute album called If I Were a Carpenter, which featured Sonic Youth and all these other kind of indie bands of the 90s uh, remaking so- uh, Karen Carpenter songs. So again, Sonic Youth were a little ahead of the curve by saying, no, we want to take Karen Carpenter seriously as you know she wasn't just some uh you know bland top 40 singer who died she actually there's a lot of like darkness to that story and we're gonna sort of bring that out which not a lot of people were doing at the time well especially not on your first major record label release <laughs> right because <laughs> how many how many kids listening to that had no clue who they were singing about you know if they're trying to reach the younger the younger age group right they they were and it's and it's it's funny. Uh, you mentioned "Dirty Boots," which was uh, I think the first single from this record. And if you go back and watch the video from that, they're playing in some club and with these kids in like flannel shirts in the audience, and they see like a a young guy and a young woman like looking at each other. And like by the end of the video, they've kind of hooked up. And it was just like, oh god. Yeah. <laughs> so that's maybe their like, record label kind of putting their hands in the in the business. Yeah, so, something was a little strange there. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of the eeriness of that song, can we just talk about her voice for a little bit? I just love the way she sings. It's always like a almost like a lazy delivery. I mean, it, you know, it's almost like spoken word with in a lot of her songs, and I love that. And, yeah, and I gotta say, like having not really. Um, you know, I haven't really listened to too much Sonic Youth prior to getting ready for this episode. And like, it didn't take long for me to fall in love with, with her and what she does and what she brings to the table and like her vocals and stuff. It's just so amazing from track to track too. Like it's, 
you know, it sounds kind of eerie in this song, but like there's other tracks where she, she brings such raw energy to it. You know, I just, maybe this is just a, we, we can talk about how great she is for, for a little bit, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. She's uh, an icon for good reason. And yeah, she, this is an example of, of, you know, she will admit, Kim will admit she's not like the world's greatest bass player or not a classically trained singer, but she made that kind of all work for her. I mean, her bass playing is incredibly, uh, recognizable. It's it's again really um, very low end. It's almost like the bass is scraping the floor. You know, <laughs> it's like really. Uh, I've used that word dank before, but it's it's it has that you know underground subway ride kind of <laughs> quality to it. And her voice is is yes, she can like scream it out or like or like in uh, in tunic, in song for Karen. It's it's this sort of almost pen- very. Uh, penetrating kind of almost spoken part that she does. It's yeah. just so intimate, you know. Yeah, and and it's very it's very arresting. I mean, it's like it just pulls you in right away, even though she's not crooning or anything, and, and right. she's not and she's not just talking or being out of tune. It's like it's uh, it's it's a very mesmerizing quality to her. Totally. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. Uh, I think we might call it haunting, Travis. Well, it's one of our favorite but that, ways so, to describe songs. I think we use it maybe once an episode. Well, I think I think David, I think I think that's what you said when we stopped playing this the track there that you and when you use the uh, word he used he used eerie. Oh, uh, you used eerie. Okay, see, uh, now, eerie. Okay, we'll, but, we'll use that word for now. But haunting would apply. Well, we we overuse. I don't write for wrong. <laughs> there's a couple so. of <laughs> there's a couple of words that we tend to overuse when describing things, and one of them is haunting. So I. I'm taking notes here on things to say because you've said plenty of great <laughs> descriptors that I'm going to try to borrow going forward. <laughs> okay. But yeah. So um, Quentin and I used to write a music blog together back in like 2009. Um, I'm sure we took all of Rolling Stones traffic away. <laughs> no, it, it was <laughs> us and everybody else. Like everybody had a music blog back then. And it, it just, yeah. yeah, it became very like, I started to notice how I would repeat myself on like trying to describe Maybe because all the bands sounded the same back then that we were reviewing, but like, yeah. So, mad props to to professional uh, writers. Uh, you guys, <laughs> you guys have to come up with new and interesting ways to describe the same kind it's of thing. Hard. Yeah, it, it is. It is a challenge. I will say <laughs> yeah. after doing it many years. Yes. Let's take a quick break. All right, so let's jump to Dirty. So this came out in 92. So what happens right before that, I guess, and maybe you can help me out with the timing on this, David. But So Sonic Youth, Thurston and Kim, they were fans of what they were hearing from Nirvana. They got a a copy of Bleach, um, and they were, like, playing it in the studio, like, showing it off to St. Germain. And they wore a Nirvana logo t-shirt during one of the their music video shoots and basically they were kind of suggesting to geffen hey like we should you guys should get nirvana like get cobain in here get get them on geffen records and cobain ended up signing with geffen partly because of his love for sonic youth yes um one of the things that i think was very savvy about geffen records signing Sonic Youth was I think they sensed that there was this whole underground indie rock world that 
would be interested in signing to a major record company, but had that wariness towards selling out and all that. And, and um, certainly Kurt and Eddie Vedder dealt with that much later on in their careers. But so having Sonic Youth on, on your label, and, and they were on a special label called DGC, which is part of Geffen, right. uh, was almost like a, a carrot, you know, to other bands. You know, it, it basically, it made Geffen seem cool. And it made it made other bands like and, and people like like Kurt, who was interested in becoming a rock star. I don't think he was hiding that, but but he, they they heard all the, the war stories about those other bands before, like Oskudu and the replacements getting you know swept up in the major label thing and then basically breaking up or explo- imploding and not it didn't go well for those. It happens bands. all the time. Happens all the time. All the time. All the time. And so for them, for for. Thurston Moore to tell someone like Kurt Cobain, hey, you know, it, it's cool to sign with Geffen. They'll 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 treat you right and they'll let you be yourself. Because Sonic Youth at that point embodied uh, integrity in in rock and roll at that time. They you know even despite all the problems with Goo, they you know they stayed true to themselves in so many ways, and they sold a decent amount of records. It wasn't you know millions, but they sold enough. And bands like Nirvana would look. At what happened there and go oh okay like you can get the records in the stores which you know again this is pre-streaming but you know that one of the problems with all the cool indie labels of the 80s was they didn't have great distribution so you could record some cool single album and it wouldn't be in the tower records or maybe it would maybe it wouldn't you wouldn't know geffen records had the records in the stores that was very important but they let you be yourself and i think so yes when when um it, it was hugely important to someone like Kurt Cobain that Sonic Youth were on Geffen and telling them, "Hey, they're cool." Vouching they, for them, they won't. They they didn't mess with us that much. <laughs> they won't mess with you that much. And uh, of course, later on, Sonic Youth cashed in those chips when they <laughs> they they uh, got a better contract with Geffen because they said, "Look what we brought you." <laughs> but um, but so loosely quoting from your book, Carol, I like how you say. You said that Nirvana was drawn into the Sonic Youth solar system. And you also bring up, um, like you said, you know, Geffen was smart in in that they recognized that Sonic Youth kind of had this like underground that, you know, they just knew all these like underground uh, filmmakers and artists and other underground indie bands. And I like uh, you quote one of the assistants in the the radio department of DGC saying like basically he had to like study up at Sonic Youth College to uh you know get to where he was able to to know who they were talking about when they were bringing up all these artists and and you know filmmakers and stuff just so they so he could be at that level of cool. So yeah, that's I mean they completely changed the game for Geffen. They really did. Um Geffen was you know, like I said as we discussed earlier known as this big mainstream rock label and thanks to Sonic Youth they became uh, an important way station, I think, for a lot of these kind of bands. And I think, yeah, I think, like you know, uh, the second record, uh, Dirty, uh, was another example of that in that, you know, there was a single uh, called 100%, the first single from that record, which was directed by a guy named Spike Jones. Oh, that guy. Who, you know, like, yeah, you know, yeah, like, that guy. Yeah, that guy. He was also part of that. So he was just a skateboarder who was making skate videos and they were, 
they were totally on top of of that world and keeping an eye on that that uh, community. And so they, you know, they hired him. And who else is in that video acting? Jason Lee, who, of course, would end up being an almost famous. Was Sophia Coppola? Sophia Coppola was in in, uh, another video from that album. She was dating she was Spike Jones, Spike, right? like Jones, yes. A very incestuous yeah. little scene. <laughs> so they were just <laughs> plugged into to sort of this vibrant culture and, and sort of pulling yes. in all the different yes. players and stuff to Yes, yeah. And 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 yeah, and for and for album covers, um Mike Kelly was an underground artist who knew Kim in college and he he did that bunny on the cover of Dirty. Uh so they, they you know, they even there, like they wouldn't put, almost never put photos of themselves on their album covers. It's very rare. It's not, they don't even have traditional album covers. You know, mostly it was like some, some oddball piece of art, Yeah. you know, that they, that sometimes was by a friend of theirs, sometimes wasn't, but they just carried all these people along with them on their kind of weird little journey into Heartland America. So if you went to, if you went to Tower Records and, and wanted to buy a Sonic Youth record, yeah, you'd see this, weird cartoon on the cover of Google by Raymond Pettibone with this couple fleeing a crime scene or, you know, it's like, you know <laughs> yeah. what this was or, or like a weird crochet little bunny rabbit, like on dirt. Yes. On dirt. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And these were, uh, you know, they were basically um, introducing uh, a portion of, uh, of, of mainstream America to underground artists and underground filmmakers like Spike Jones and, um, and underground music in a way, in a way that, you know, uh, again, that was uh, kind of revolutionary in a way. Really cool. So Butch Vig had just finished up recording Nevermind, and then it had just been released in September of 91. 30 years ago this month. Oh, man, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so they brought in Butch Vig to produce dirty right and so from what i gathered from your book so geffen brought him in because it made sense right because because nevermind was immediately a huge success but sonic youth kind of just liked him because he was more he was like them in a way he was more punk rock is the way they put it not necessarily because he recorded nevermind they wanted to work with him just because they felt like he was more like them yeah, he was a drummer in the hardcore bands, and and he he had his own indie rock roots. Yeah, he, he had his cred. Yeah, he had his cred, and and he he wasn't like some big time cigar puffing you know record producer or whatever. He he was definitely kind of part of their world, and I think they were curious to you know make a, a polished rock record. You know, I think and I, I think it was all completely uh, pressure of the label, but. Everybody saw what happened with Nevermind. Uh, and it's sort of funny because the same month that Nevermind came out, the same company, Geffen Records, put out an album by a, a Texas band called Galactic Cowboys. And they were a sort of hard rock, sort of metal, but kind of melodic band. Uh, long hair and everything. Very Not hair metal, but mm, not too far removed here. And I remember at the time I was working at Entertainment Weekly uh, magazine and the buzz coming out from all the, the, you know, the press people was like, oh, Galactic Cowboys. 
that's going to be the big record. <laughs> and oh yeah, we also signed this band called Nirvana. And it's kind of kind of cool. Um, and of course, most people never heard Galactic Cowboys and don't remember it. Right. And it was such a that was such a um, 180 degree moment or something in the culture when yeah the Nirvana record explodes and the more mainstream rock record that everyone thought would explode implodes <laughs> and uh, and it just took everyone completely by surprise and it made everyone think oh well gee maybe maybe we could have one of those ourselves whether it was the record companies or bands like sonic youth they were like oh well maybe people are open to hearing these discordant edgier sounds on the radio if they and if they're produced a little bit better you know like nevermind is a pretty well produced record i mean it's you know, it's 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 raw in its way, but it's it's contoured really well, and and so everyone's thinking, oh, we can kind of do that, and I think Sonic Youth were were open to that too, and so they had, you know, they worked really hard on those songs, uh, which were, again, I wouldn't say catchy, but 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 they were they were more compact in a lot of ways, and and uh, and they were a little more a uh, little more human, you know, there was a song about the death of one of their friends and and there were there were things in that record that were that were not they weren't as distanced or ironic as sonic youth could be they were they were it was a little more emotional well and they also brought in andy wallace to mix it right so that's the same duo butch vig andy wallace that did Nevermind. right so let's play a non-single from dirty let's name off the singles we have 100 percent, which from what i read was their highest ranking single at least at the time maybe ever Right. It reached number four on Billboard's Modern Rock chart. And we've got Youth Against Fascism, Sugarcane, and Drunken Butterfly. And we should add that when they put out Youth Against Fascism, the record company printed up bumper stickers and misspelled fascism. <laughs> oh, my yeah, gosh. So it was like one of many examples of, you know, yeah, the big conglomerate trying to market Sonic Youth and kind of missing uh, missing the boat. <laughs> Misspelling it on purpose would be one thing. So. <laughs> right, right, right. No, it was not on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going to play track three, actually. Uh, this one is called Teresa's Sound World.
it's interesting you picked that song. It's which is a is a great uh, song and performance because that's um, when I interviewed Thurston Moore for my book. He said uh, of of all the music they made during that time and with with Butch Vig, which was two albums, that's the favorite. That's his favorite track of every of anything they did with him. Awesome. I, I think that's a great example of the way that someone like Butch could help them harness their sound without losing any of its sort of fury. You know, it's really contained and it's, and it's, and it's, it, it, it flows really well. And it has, uh, you know, the song faded out before you heard this kind of instrumental freak out, but it's not, it, it immediately goes right back into the kind of pulse of the song. It's kind of like hills and valleys, like a little journey in that song. Yeah, and that's what's interesting about his voice is that he can also be sort of um, reserved um, and like sort of like, like you were saying, contained, I think is what you said. But like around it is all of it. I was going to say haunting. <laughs> haunting, right? Um, <laughs> but like around all of it is sort of like the, uh, the like, you know, right on the edge of becoming a little bit more like frenetic and stuff and chaotic and stuff like that. Uh, it's, it just seems like it's like about to like like there's like a pressure or something like that getting built up that it's about to go into something like you said. I think it sounds like it opens up right after we fade it out. So so I I have one. There's one reason why I picked this song, and it's a quote that I pulled from your book that Butch Vig says here. Um, he's talking about uh, Shelley, who asked him to turn the drums down when the song arrived at its careening midsection. Sorry, that's actually your that's your words, David. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a trademark. <laughs> so, uh, so Vig says, I don't know anybody in a band who's ever said that, but they wanted the guitars to become literally this wall of sound and the bass and drums to be a pulse mixed behind it. So, wall of sound that is synonymous with you know, loveless and. Uh, shoegaze, all that stuff. And Loveless had, had just come out. It just come out, yeah. Is that right? Same, or, yeah, 91. 91, right. So, yeah. Um, who did it first, right? Like, I mean, My Bloody Valentine's been around since the 80s. Like, I'm always curious about about that that shoegaze sound and that, and that like, specifically that wall of sound and, like, I guess Kevin Shields, like, glide guitar style that he did, you know, like, who influenced who? I feel like maybe Sonic Youth had had something to do with that. Uh, I would even go back to Jesus and Mary Chain in the eighties. They they were also one of the first who you know who, who had a, built those wall of guitars. But yeah, who influenced who in that way? Um, as far as those records in the nineties, that's a good question. So I had read that um, Kevin Shields was a big fan of Glenn Branca. Is that how you say his uh, name? Glenn, Glenn Branca, yes. And Thurston Moore and and Ronaldo, they both played guitar in his group back in i guess it was the 80s right the early 80s the yeah. early 80s and yeah another key member of that scene is older than them but glenn bronco who passed away a couple of years ago would um have these write these sort of almost symphonic kind of somewhat classical pieces but for you know 25 guitars right electric guitars and uh he would have these guitar symphonies and they were just overpowering 80 feet high wall of sound of guitars. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Sonic definitely took a lot from him. Did they borrow his weird guitar 
tunings too was that yes, all from him so some some of that some of that as well although i think they took it in in different directions especially in terms of what they would do is partly again out of economics a lot of sonic youth's guitars were like used beat up reconfigured uh and that that added a whole new element to the the tunings you know because the, the guitars were like frankenstein monster type creations right yeah and I know that was something that Butch Vig was trying to, to do with them in the studio. Like, sure, they could have their weird tunings, but it had to be like precisely that tune, like that tuning for throughout the recording so that it would be consistent. Right. So that's totally different from what they're used to. And I know they he added some processing effects to, to Gordon's voice, like in the mix. And they were throwing like drum samples on top of Shelly's snare and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, it does. It does kind of sound like a Nevermind kind of like a Butch Vig record, right? Yeah, it was their most produced record, uh, and I think intentionally on everybody's part. You know, it was like let's see how how far we can take this, uh, how far we can polish uh, the the sound of the Beast before uh, with while still maintaining its its uh, inherent qualities. Uh, and, and kind of, you know, slip it past the mainstream, you know, <laughs> you know, slide it in See there. See if it'll get in there. Yeah. And, and, um, and yeah, I think, yeah, I think Butch did a great job of that. of really, um, keeping them on a, I wouldn't say a short leash, but, but, but having them rehearse songs over and over again and get those parts exactly right. Uh, and it was, it was kind of a big experiment really on, on their part and, even on the record company's part. I mean, everybody really thought Dirty was going to be Nevermind Part 2. Uh, even though Sonic Youth were like 10 years older than Kurt Cobain or and they were 15 years older than the teenagers who bought Nevermind. Uh, but but it was such a crazy world. And that's one of the things that was kind of amazing about that scene is that there was this possibility that, wow, maybe all these weird... Uh, culty or underground guitar bands could actually sell records if Nirvana could like, and suddenly you have, um, you know, bands like King Missile from New York or Teenage Fan Club from the UK or Red Cross, another one. They had small followings and suddenly you had all these American companies throwing all this money at them and saying, it's it's just gold rush. Everyone's going to be, you know, like Nirvana, which of course was never going to happen, but um, but it was, you know, it's it's interesting to me to, for example, at, at Rolling Stone, they have this uh, digital wall of all every cover of the magazine going back to 1967, and you can walk by and it it it, it glides past you these digital reproductions, and when you get to the 90s, you see like Nirvana's on the cover. Uh, Pearl Jam. Uh, we, we haven't talked about Pearl Jam, but that was part of this too. But then you see like a band like Belly, you know, who were uh, uh, a largely female-centric indie guitar band who got the major label contract, never sold any records, but there they were on the cover of Rolling Stone. Yeah. Pearl Jam, let's not forget Pearl Jam's 10 came out also in the fall of 1991. And uh, Dirt. Uh, and, and, so, and so did San... Uh, Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger came out this same month. I mean, the same month you had, you had all three of those records. Um, this is kind of uh, 
amazing thing to think about. Something we didn't mention earlier, but um, Butch Vig had done in between Nevermind and Dirty, he had done Gish by Smashing Pumpkins. Right. Which is kind of interesting because that album had sort of a um, not really not really shoegaze, but more like a psychedelic, you know, Smashing Pumpkins had kind of a psychedelic flair to it. Grungy all. shoegaze. Yeah, grungy shoegaze with psychedelic and stuff like that. So right, right. I guess it's all kind of in there. And then they got signed to a major after that too for Siamese Dream. So that was 93. Yeah. So again, you had this sense of like, wow, this whole new world has opened up. And people like, you know, the, the mainstream rock stuff that we talked about earlier, Bruce Springsteen, John Mellencamp, stuff, you know, Brian Adams and... That stuff was all kind of played out by this point, you know, not that those people were over and done with, but that stuff had sort of peaked, you know, they, those those acts weren't selling as many records. And you had this whole new audience, Gen X, you know, coming up and saying, we want our own music and, and we, we're not interested in this hokey guitar bands, guitar rock stuff from from the past, you know, um, there was suddenly this massive market. The Lollapalooza tour was 1991, the first one. And then the second one was 92 with Pearl Jam and Ministry. And suddenly it's selling out like major outdoor uh, venues on the, you know, and, and um, it was a wild time. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, 1991 with Under the Bridge and, and Breaking the Girl and all those songs from Blood, Blood Sugar, Sex, Magic. Yeah. That was a huge album. And suddenly all this stuff is in the top 10 and dominating MTV. And so everyone thought, well, Sonic Youth will be next. Yeah. But it just, it didn't happen though. I mean, it sold a little bit more than Goo, is that right? But not, it did. not by much. It sold like, uh, I'm trying to remember, 200,000 copies, maybe something like that, which was pretty respectable for indie band, but nothing like the, I can't remember, the millions that Nevermind sold. And, you know, I think Sonic Youth were, like I said, they were, they were a little older, a little weirder. They weren't writing. There was no real "Smells Like Teen Spirit" yeah, yeah. type in their repertoire, even though they they sort of tried, but they it wasn't their destiny. Yeah, they didn't have any really big like hooks or anything like that in, in their songs, right? I mean, it seemed like they were just a little bit more. Right. They were different enough to where it just didn't didn't work, I guess, for the for the mainstream. But in a way, like removed from it, like that's kind of what makes them so special and so great right but maybe at the time this was this was their their moment to try to make it big it sounds like with this record it was and and they and yet they still were who they were i mean if you went to see them live back then they would still there was always that moment would come when one of the they would be playing some song and it would just deteriorate into this like feedback guitar jam yeah where they'd be like putting the guitars into the amps and getting all this feedback out and Maybe just dropping the guitars on the ground and just making strange sounds with picking up a nail file and scraping it against the thing. And again, that was just true to who they were and what they would do in clubs in New York City in the early 80s. And they were now just doing this on bigger stages. But, but you know, having been to some of those shows in both those eras, you know, the kids who were there like expecting Jeremy or some equivalent right. to, you know, even flow were like – we're like, what? What is? What's going <laughs> yeah. on here? Yeah. You know, it was like yeah. it was utterly baffling, you know, to to a lot of people. Yeah, but that sort of that sort of mirrors the the shoegaze wall of sound type stuff, right? Where it's just like this this you know you just hit with all this feedback and stuff and this um, noise, yeah, noise rock, right, right. That's yeah. interesting. 
and and they and in interviews they'd always be kind of like sarcastic or aloof. Yeah, they weren't like playing the game particularly well. You know, they they you know they they went along. You'd see them on MTV, something like that. But it but but you could tell they weren't. It was kind of half-hearted. Yeah, in a way. So after. Dirty, I mean, I don't know if you would call it a flop, but it w- definitely was underwhelming for what they expected from it. They basically just decided to, to, I guess, do it their way again for Experimental Jet Set, Trash and No Star. They brought Butch Vig along, but they basically almost wanted to do like a, yeah, a complete 180 in the studio where it's like, let's just try and do these all in one take or whatever, you know, let's not spend however many takes Let's just do it. If it feels right, let's move on to the next song. That's very telling, I feel like, after, you know, the first two albums and and on the major label, you know, they're already done with it. They're like, we, we played your game. We're going to go back to doing it our way. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point. And it's so interesting how quickly they uh, got fed up yeah. <laughs> with that kind of situation. Uh, other bands would have just kept, you know, filing down their sound more and more and like, okay, let's just... Let's keep at it. We're gonna. We're getting closer. We're getting closer. Right. Because they kind of were. If you think about it, they went from selling whatever, hundred, hundred fifty thousand of goo to more, they sold more of dirty. So you know, it was a bit of an uphill. It was. It was a. You know, the trajectory was going up there in terms of the sales, if not dramatically. And, and any other band would have been like, okay, we're on to something. Let's get uh, whoever's. Um, the hot new person to produce our next record. And they, they were already like, okay, been there, done that. This isn't for us. They always wanted to maintain their kind of cool integrity aspect. And, you know, uh, and, and at the same time, they also, they, they brought along, you know, for one of the videos of Dirty, they had this unknown model uh, where she was actually a skateboard kid named Chloe Sevigny. For Dirty? Yeah. Was it Sugarcane? Sugarcane. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the video for Sugarcane uh, they have their friends in pavement in the audience and they have Chloe Sevigny on this runway, another little snapshot of the Sonic Youth you know, universe, in this case of you know, 1992, 1993. And Chloe Sevigny was just this, this kid from Connecticut who'd been in Kids, that skateboard movie, and she, you know, she wasn't like starring on HBO series and all the stuff that she would do later. <laughs> and they just, you know, she became part of their circle too and they cast her in this video again and, and this is a time you know when sometimes you'd see videos with sort of celebrity guests in them you know and sonic is doing it with like completely unknown people um although a couple of albums later they did have uh, macaulay culkin <laughs> really but that was like eight years after home alone oh so <laughs> they, this gawky teenager they brought him know? back <laughs> so, they brought him back it was part of the uh, the macaulay revival i wonder something. if that was during his uh his pizza underground days. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do not. Pizza underground. Okay. Maybe this is completely false, but I heard that Macaulay Culkin was in a velvet underground tribute band and they changed up all the lyrics to be about pizza. Oh, the pizza underground. You're right. I can't make that up. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. This was 2014, 2014, 2014. Yeah. So a little bit later, 2014 pizza underground. Yeah. That, that does well, sound like something you new. Learn something, you learn something new on every podcast. <laughs> there you go. It's what, it's what, it's awesome. what I say. Yeah. <laughs> so with Experimental Jet Set, is it true that they, they went back and recorded it at Sears Sound? Was that actually the same studio that they recorded Sister in? 
It was. It was. So they like totally were like, let's go back to our comfort zone. Totally go back. Yeah. Sadly enough, almost all of these famous New York recording studios where they made their records are gone. That's not surprising. Uh, I, I, I tried to track even 10 years ago when I did the book, they were all starting to uh, mm. collapse. But, um, Man. but, but yes, they went back to that same place. Um, they, they used Butch Vig again, but they kind of laid down the law and like, yeah, we're going to do these songs quick and fast and, uh, and, and not labor over them. And some of them are just kind of weird little riffy things. They're, they're not even complete songs in the way Sonic Youth songs could be. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the motto for the sessions became good enough. I love it's that. Good uh, yeah, it sounds good. Good enough. Good enough for us. On to the next but one. It, it sounds like that's kind of they had always had that sort of like good enough mentality, right? Up to to goo, right? Before they started to try to make it more take it more seriously. So that's just that's just their what they did, right? Kind of how they approached it. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I love I love experimental jet set actually. Like I, I, that might be my favorite out of the three. If for in what way? I'm, you know, I like the songs are a little bit shorter, you know, um, they're a little more poppy. I like they, they, there are some moments that are more experimental and like with Tokyo Eye with that, the way they, I don't know if it's a drum sample or what, but yeah, there's just, it seems more playful maybe. I don't know. It's different. So I had the same thought actually of the three, this was my favorite record. And to me, it felt the most like cohesive of the three records like it sounded all very like unified, I guess. I don't know. It just sounded, it also sounded darker. That's another word I use all the time, by the way. So that <laughs> word almost means nothing because I use it so often, but like, it had, <laughs> so are you familiar with a band called Spoon, David? You probably are. Spoon. Yeah, sure. So like there was a, um, the, the, the early, the nineties era Spoon, which was like girls can tell. And um, I guess a little bit of the one before that series of sneaks, had a similar vibe and that maybe that's the only reason I like it because it reminded me of some of Spoon's early stuff. And I think it's safe to say after listening to this, that the Brit Daniel of Spoon was probably influenced by, by Sonic Youth quite a bit. Cause this, this uh, record in particular kind of, to, to me at least reminds me of, of that stuff, but yeah, it just had a more, to, to me, it just had a more, more cohesive sound to it. And it just, it, it just from start to finish, it just really flowed really well to me. No, I think you're right about that. I, I, I listened back to it the other day to prepare uh, for this, and I, I hadn't listened to it in a few years. And uh, I think at the time it didn't – it felt more um, – it felt just kind of more oddball and quirkier than the two before. Like like all those those series of like shorter songs, like you said, and, and some of them seemed like they were just building to a head of something and then they end. And it, it's, it seemed like at the time less ambitious – I guess I would say than the three before. I mean, if you start with Daydream Nation, like you said, good enough, right? Good enough, yeah. And this seemed more small scale, Sonic Youth in a way. But I think it's aged really well. No, I think you're right, and I think the last song, Sweet Shine, that Kim sings, is really beautiful, really pretty. Yeah, yeah. So and now and it's interesting because Travis and I are coming into this having just listened to this album for the first time, you know, a couple weeks ago, right? So you heard it when it came out, obviously. Um, so you've got all these decades that have gone by. You have a relationship with it, obviously, that, that's <laughs> yeah. years long. And you can think of you can think of it when it came out versus after listening to it again after a few years, and now with all this, all the different kind of styles of music that is that has come and gone 
since then, you know, how it, it plays a little bit differently now. Yeah. And I think that's another thing to, to, to talk about too, is like our, our relationship to this record, uh, you know, we have the indie rock that we, that Quentin and I kind of grew up with, which was bands like the Strokes and Interpol and, and all that other, that wave of indie music that happened, the, the garage rock post-punk revival stuff that happened in the 2000s, 2010s and stuff like that. So like we can like it, it all, I, I can see how it comes from, records like this like you know it seems like this was like the uh the precursor to that kind of stuff because I'm, I'm hearing a lot of similarities to to indie bands that, that that made music in the in the 2000s and stuff it seems like they kind of point back to this record a little bit i think you draw a line from this to the like the first strokes record yeah totally for sure even like the sound of it you know the way that uh, Julian's voice was recorded on that record through that microphone and stuff like that it's it's got that it's got that same you know, that same downtown New York vibe, I guess you could say to it, if that means anything to anyone outside of New York. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting how, um, as I said earlier, Sonic, you've never quite made it, but, but they, they, they set the scene for so many other things in music. They brought so you know, all these other people along with them uh, who, who did so much better than them and made a bigger um bigger cultural impact in a way uh that uh it's kind of an unfortunate thing but but it's quite a legacy at the same time yeah totally well let's play our last track here so we have one more track off of jet set here this is the surprise track this is the surprise track yeah Yeah. we we switched this one out at the last minute uh and speaking of quirky this one's like very quirky i love i love the story behind this one so we're going to play uh track five this one's called screaming skull
And I love that guitar as it's fading out there. <laughs> this so is cool. another another song where he just crams a bunch of pop culture references into it. I mean, the first time I heard the song, all I all I kept hearing was Pat Smear, Pat Smear, and I was like, "That's hilarious." <laughs> but um, well, yeah. so do you want to do you want to tell the story, David, or should I? Because I read from your book the story behind this, and I love it. Yeah, it's them. Uh, it's when uh, uh, Kim and Thurston. Uh, well, well, they in the early days, Sonic Youth recorded for a label called SST Records, which was one of the big indie labels of the eighties. And but they ended up moving to another label, partly because. They weren't always getting paid. There were financial things, distribution issues, as we discussed earlier with some of those companies. And so there they are now in the 90s, and they come across an SST Records uh, superstore in Hollywood or L.A. somewhere. Uh, you know, In other words, their former label, who could barely afford to pay them, has opened this record store selling their old records to cash in on the you know, alternative Alt-rock mania. It was called alt-rock at the time. It wasn't called indie rock. It was the worst term ever, alt-rock. <laughs> like, you know, it's I, I agree 100%. It's a whole, that's a whole other thing. You know, in, in the 80s when R.E.M. and these bands were starting, it was called college rock. When I hear college rock, I think R.E.M. immediately. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then the early 90s when this stuff was happening, the industry was like, what do we call it now? And it became alternative rock. And then it became shortened to alt-rock. And then eventually it became indie much later. So anyway, uh, here's this store selling, you know, vintage alt college rock. Uh, and the, the whole song is a sarcastic list of references to records in the stores. Or, yeah, all the bands that they see as they're <laughs> flipping through records. And then he, he mentions Pat Smear, uh, guitarist for Germs. And Pat Smear was working there at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and he later Which went on to, to join Nirvana and... And then Foo Fighters, yeah, exactly. too. And Foo Fighters. But uh, he also says uh, one of the lines is, let's go there, sisters there. So he's referencing their record sister. Oh, sisters <laughs> there. Like it's a <laughs> Sisters there. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's great, man. Yeah, love it. But it's a fun, it's a fun song. It's, so, it's kind of a quirky song, too. And I guess that's key. You were saying that this record sounded more playful to you, and that's probably what you're, you're talking about, right? Right. I think that's a fair, that's a fair thing to say about it. For sure, and it sounds like if they're if they're just like hey, you know what, let's just let's just make a record the way we want to make it. It seems like that would be the time to to, to have a little bit more fun, you know, and just kind of not worry about it because this you wouldn't throw a song like this on a on a record that's trying to to make it big. Although this sounds like a song that you may have heard on like a Presidents of the United States of America record or something like that, or, or you know what I mean, like <laughs> oh, that wow. kind of playful kind of stuff. And that guitar had a, like a very grunge chord progression to me, so like it sounds like. This came out in '94. It was almost like a, like that desert rock sound. I mean, just like that guitar riff at the very end sounded very like, I don't know, desert rock. Maybe like Queens of the Stone Age or um, Caius, maybe. Caius, yes. Caius, yeah. Stoner rock. Stoner rock, yeah. Yes. Also known as stoner rock. Yeah. Also, <laughs> right. <laughs> the the shame the shame of this record though is that they didn't tour to promote it, because uh, Kim and Thurston had a baby. Right, in 1994, Coco. Uh, Coco, and um, so and so they took that year off, and then when they finally hit the road again in '95, that was they had already put out another record called Washing Machine, and so they were doing a lot of those songs, and so that's another reason I think um, Experimental Jet Set is is sort of uh, somewhat forgotten. It just wasn't uh, played up on tour. There wasn't like a big tour where they played all these songs or a lot of the songs like a band does 
you know, we're promoting our new record and here's six songs from it along with some of your favorite golden oldies. <laughs> they, didn't, and they didn't do that here. And so a lot of people yeah. never got to hear these songs live, which is kind of a shame because it would have been cool. Um, although I didn't, I didn't in, um, gosh, I guess it was two years ago now, pre-pandemic times, uh, Sonic Youth put out a whole bunch of music on Bandcamp, including all these live recordings. And there's one from uh, Spain in 93, which is them doing early live versions of these experimental jet set songs. Some of them are instrumental. Some of them have different lyrics, Cool, uh, but it's really great. I highly recommend it. It's also really well recorded and stuff. Um, and it's a, it's a great uh, thing they unearthed from the vault. So that's one of the few times you get to hear some of these songs live. Awesome. Yeah. And support band camp, which is yes. a good, good thing. Totally. Yeah. Well, that's it, man. That's all we got. Thank you so much for chatting with us, man. Sure, it was really it was a lot of fun. I appreciate your your interest in Sonic Youth. You know, it's it's good to see uh, somewhat some youngsters getting into <laughs> them because uh, sometimes I wonder, like, gee, are they being forgotten now? Yeah, you know, especially as as alt rock recedes more into the history books and people think back on that era now, uh, and they only think of Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and, right, and Sound Soundgarden. Maybe Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, and we've talked about that before, actually, that, you know, so we, we grew up in the 90s, and so our brother, our older brother, we would listen to his CD. It's kind of similar to your, you listen to your sister's music, right? Uh-huh. And he only had the Smashing Pumpkins records and the uh, the, the Pearl Jam and the, um, yeah, he had Stuntable Pilot, stuff like that. But it was just the he didn't have Sonic Youth, right? Not to throw him under the bus or anything like that. But I'm just saying, like, yeah, you know, yeah, we're yeah. The, the older we get, when we go back and like what what I what I appreciate is is finding the the the, and it's not it's weird to call Sonic Youth obscure because they're not. But like the more the more obscure stuff you mentioned, Minutemen earlier, like first one of the first things you talked about was the Minutemen. I just stumbled upon them maybe a few weeks ago, I actually featured on the podcast as like a, on one of our, what you heard episodes. Um, anyway, so like, yeah, you know, this is what we live for. Just like finding these, these bands that maybe didn't get much attention. Like this is kind of one of the, one of the things we like to do on no filler at least is, is, um, talk about these, these more obscure bands, but Sonic youth is, is one of those bands that everybody knows about. Maybe like everybody has heard the name, but maybe you're just not that familiar with their their music, and it, yeah, it was great to to go back and listen to these records because you can totally hear their influence on the music that we listened to in the 2000s. So I think you know if we were to talk about the the, the legacy, I think you you'd said like you know are they being forgotten? Maybe, but I feel like their their legacy is still very much like the impact is still there. You know, on, on, on bands that are making music right now, indie rock bands that are putting out music right now. You know. They made it kind of acceptable to be weird and be and still be weird in the mainstream kind of thing. And that was that's an important uh, aspect. And, and it's funny, they, they did have an interesting, almost mainstream moment in around 2008. Uh, there was this weird confluence of things where they um, here, here's a, here's a bit of 90s. I'm sorry, 2000s nostalgia for everybody when Starbucks sold rec- CDs. I do remember that. Remember that. It was right at the front counter. And they had they their don't own do li- that anymore? They don't do that anymore. Oh, I remember that. And they had their own company called See Here Music. Mm. But they put out a Starbucks-only Sonic Youth collection. What? Called Hit, Hit Surfer Squares, where every song was chosen by one of their famous friends. 
So Spike Jones picked his favorite Sonic Youth song, Chloe Sevigny. Uh, you know, go down the list. That's it's, pretty cool. All you have to do is look at that record. It's still available. And look at the, the credits and see who picked which song. And you'll see their legacy right there on that record of all these uh, artists and musicians who were big fans of theirs and who they championed along the way. And at the same time, one of their songs was in the soundtrack of Juno. Oh, Remember yeah. That movie. That's a big one. And and they were even part of the dialogue. Uh, Justin Bateman. Uh, Jason. Jason. Jason Bateman. Sorry. Jason Bateman having this conversation with the Ellen Page character. Oh, he's, yeah. He's trying to tell him, hey, Sonic Youth are really cool. <laughs> yeah. She's like, it's just noise or something. Um, That's kind of like uh, the shins showing up in the Garden State. Oh, yeah. Well, so. the funny thing is like that. I feel like that propelled the shins. Like that's what put yeah. them on a lot of people's radar. Yeah. But I guess that didn't really happen for Sonic Youth and, and Junior. Yeah, Sonic Youth. And, and then the third thing right at the same time was Cool Thing was in Guitar Hero. So, you know, yeah, that's, that's right. funny. Big it's like downloadable content. I don't think it was ever one of the one of the original songs. But, yeah, talk about random. There's probably a story to be to be written David, about um, the guitar hero, um, the guitar hero uh, effect. Like, is that a thing? Like, I know that there are young, really young people that would never, ever in a million years hear a Steely Dan song, for example. And I know Bodhisattva is on Rock Band or something like that. That you know, that Steely Dan. I don't remember what record it was on. I think it was on Countdown to Ecstasy or something like that. But uh-huh. we want to talk about a song that the, most of the kids that played Guitar Hero. Or, or rock band would never in a million years listen to, but here it is, you know, suddenly there. And that's, yeah. a, that's a whole other show right there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The Starbucks years. The rock <laughs> band. The, the, the Starbucks guitar hero years. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be a whole other segment for you. Part two of this episode coming next week. <laughs> yeah. So um, we usually have an outro song that we'll do for our episodes, and I thought it might be fun. So we have what we call our what you heard episodes basically it's we pick five songs just music we've been hearing in between recordings and we do an entire episode where we we just play music the whole time and talk about about the music so we were thinking we could have us outro out this episode with a song that you've heard recently that you really liked if if you can think of anything on the spot it can be anything anything any era anything (laughs) sure uh Pressure's on. <laughs> I'm researching a book right now on the history of music in Greenwich Village. Okay. And I've been listening to a lot of Dave Van Ronk. All right. There we go. Who was something of the inspiration for Inside Lewin Davis, the Coen Brothers movie. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, the main character has a little Dave Van Ronk in him. So um, there's a song called Sunday Street. Sunday Street. That I've been listening to. So a uh, little, little, little gravelly 60s, 70s Greenwich Village folk for you. Oh, that's going to be great. Awesome. Well, cool, guys. It was great, great talking. I appreciate the interest. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us and taking taking the time to, to speak with us. Thank you, Quentin and Travis. Uh, keep the faith. <laughs> keep the faith. Us, yeah, that's good. They say. That's a good sign off. Rocking in the free world. Yeah, that's right. All right, <laughs> awesome. David. Take care. All right. Have a good one, guys. Not a 
dollar, not a nickel, not a penny to my name. I'm the king of Tap City and I'm out of the game. A nickel up, a nickel down, another nickel gone. Ain't got a nickel left to carry me on. If I ever get back on my feet, I'll move from Saturday alley up to Sunday street. It makes me seven all the time I'm gonna be living on chicken and wine I want caviar, four star and Johnny Walker Black Six pretty women in my gold Cadillac Gonna move where the living is sweet From Saturday alley up to Sunday street It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 